Mark chapter 8 in your copies of God's Word this morning, please. Mark chapter 8 as we continue working our way through Mark's Gospel. I want to say a couple of things here as you're finding your place in your copies of the Scriptures. Number one, it is good to have our deaf ministry with us this morning. Great to see you. Thanks for being here. We love having you with us, and we love the deaf ministry that God has given us here at Bethel. Normally, they're down on the other end of the facility meeting and uh, learning God's word together, but it's good to have them with us this morning. And then secondly, thank you to everyone for your birthday well wishes and your cards and your gifts as you celebrated me turning 51 this past week. Now, I do have a few things to say about turning 51. And I know all of those who are older than me, you're all laughing at me. And all of those younger are also laughing at me. Um, when you hit 51, you don't celebrate birthdays anymore. You just have them. And then when you hit 51, you spend quite a bit of time walking around your home aimlessly because you enter a room and you can't remember why you're there. You spend a lot of time confused. But you know, that's a lot like the disciples of Jesus in this text in Mark chapter 8. I mean, on the one hand, we've just come out of their shining moment in verses 27 through 30 of Mark chapter 8, where Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. After more than two years of following Jesus and listening to Jesus and watching Jesus, they finally get it. God flips the switch and the light bulb comes on. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah the promised one, the son of the living God. They finally get the identity of Jesus right. But then this happens, beginning in verse 31 of Mark 8. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, the Messiah, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly, not in a parable, plainly, clearly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with his holy angels. This is the word of our God. It's, it's a hard word. It's a tough word. But it is an absolutely essential and necessary word for us. It's all about God's plan. Now, how many of you would acknowledge publicly this morning by a raised hand that you plan? You plan hard, you plan well, you are a planner. Anybody? 
All right, good number of you. All right, that's about the best audience participation I've ever had here. All right. You're planners, man. You are type A when it comes to planning. And so you literally plan, uh, you literally print and bring with you an itinerary on family vacation. You, you there? Okay. I mean, you have this thing so planned out, you have it planned out in 15 minute increments. And you are carrying your pen with you to check off when you have done that last 15-minute increment. Anybody like that? Okay. So how many of you are other, on the other end of the spectrum? You aren't planners. Come on. You are fly by the seat of your pantsers. Right? You go on vacation to escape the daily schedule. You kind of k-sarah-sarah it all vacation long. Whatever will be will be. Now, God is a planner. But before all you planners in the congregation start shaming us non-planners, remember this. God plans in a way you don't, in a way you can't. Our plans are hope-so plans. God's plan is a no-so plan. Our plans might come to fruition. God's plan will. He doesn't just plan meticulously. He executes perfectly. Always working with all people at all times, in all events and places to accomplish His plan. It's Ephesians 1 verse 11 where we read, that God works all things after the counsel of his own will. All things, including the death of his own son. You know what that means? Right up front here. You know what it means that God plans from eternity past the death of his son? It's a big deal for you if you're a follower of Jesus. It means that your salvation isn't an afterthought or an accident. That there is divine intentionality and purpose in God adopting you into his family. You aren't here this morning by accident. Because everything it took to make you his child is both planned and premeditated, including the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that's what the disciples aren't getting about Jesus. Because after nailing the identity of Jesus, Peter totally whiffs on the mission of Jesus. And in just a few verses, Peter goes from a hero to a zero. From confessing the truth about Jesus to perpetrating a lie from the devil. And from Peter's hard and fast fall, we learn and we acknowledge this morning that one of our big struggles as followers of Jesus is to embrace God's plan even when we don't understand. Or maybe I should say it, embrace God's plan, especially when we don't understand. That's the big idea of this text. So let me ask, where is your plan this morning for your life bumping up against God's plan for your life? And you're struggling with that. And you're tempted to say this morning, whoa, God, well, not your plan, my plan. That's where the disciples are right here. And that's why... 
Remember last week I ended with leaving a question hanging. Why does Jesus say what he says in verse 30? Why does Jesus tell the disciples after they've just confessed him publicly as the Messiah, why does he say, don't tell anyone who I am? Don't say a word. It's because they don't get who Jesus really is and that who he really is is going to affect his mission. They don't get how all of this is going to play out for Jesus as Messiah. They think Messiah is all about kingdoms and thrones and crowns because those were the bedtime stories they were told when they were boys. Those were the conversations they would overhear in the local Israeli barbershop. When Messiah comes... He's going to put an end to Rome ruling over us. He will overthrow Caesar and he will rule worldwide over that throne from Jerusalem, David's throne. That's all they've ever heard growing up about Messiah's mission. And here he is right here, right now. They've not only seen him and heard him, he's called them to follow him and be with him. And when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, I can just imagine the disciples high-fiving and chest-bumping. Okay, Jesus, come on. It's time. Ready or not, Rome, here we come. Let's roll, Jesus. Come on. But that's the issue. That's the problem. They've taken those Old Testament prophecies about a worldwide messianic kingdom And they've overlooked all the Old Testament prophecies about a suffering and dying Messiah, which has always been God's plan. And that's why Jesus says, guys, don't tell anyone who I am. You're misunderstanding my mission. And so I'm going to let you in on my Father's plan for me. Here it is. Listen carefully, guys. I'm going to speak plainly. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And if we were shooting this scene as part of a film... This is where we would zoom in on the disciples' faces because they are shocked. They are speechless. The Son of Man? They know that that's a messianic title ripped from the pages of Daniel in the Old Testament and he's going to suffer? The one who put the human body together is going to feel the pain of this world's sin in his own body. The crown of thorns crushing his skull. The nails piercing his hands and his feet. And the, and the spear plunging into his side. The one who created those nerves in the human body. Those nerves in his body are going to be screaming from the pain he's enduring. That kind of suffering? Yes, guys. That kind of suffering. It's what Isaiah wrote in the Old Testament more than 700 years before Jesus. 
that he will be pierced for our transgressions. He will be crushed for our iniquities. Upon him will be the chastisement that will bring us peace. And with his wounds, we will be healed. But that isn't all the suffering. In fact, that isn't even the severest suffering. Because Jesus won't just suffer in his body. He'll suffer in his soul. He will experience the greatest agony and defeat any human ever has, bearing the weight of all the sins of all who will ever trust in him. That's what we hear from Jesus' lips as he cries out from the cross the words of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the crushing weight of our sin placed upon Messiah's soul. And that's why Isaiah 53 verse 10 says that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Not for anything he had done, but for everything we have done. The plan is for Jesus to suffer and to be rejected outright by all the Jewish religious leaders. He has to feel the sting of rejection. And again, it's prophesied in Isaiah 53 verse 3. He will be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And Jesus is saying to his men, his disciples, guys, don't you remember what Isaiah wrote about my rejection? I have to be despised and rejected so that you can be welcomed and accepted. Jesus has to be killed so that we can live. The one who created life and sustains life. The one in whom is life itself will die. He won't just be partly dead or mostly dead he will be all dead. No heartbeat, no brain waves, no life at all. It's the only way he can bring those who are dead to life forever. It's why he came. It's what he says in John 10 verses 10 and 11. I came that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. So you know what that means? It means the good shepherd is going to lay down his life for the sheep. And so from his death will come life. Because death isn't the final chapter in God's plan. Life is a grave isn't the end of the story. Heaven is. And that's why Jesus says right here that after three days I will rise again. John 10 verse 17, Jesus will say, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay my life down so that I may take it up again. But the disciples here are so stunned by all the death talk 
that they probably don't even hear the resurrection promise because Jesus says this isn't just what might happen or could happen. This is what's going to happen. This is what must happen. It isn't a maybe or a probably. It's a certainly. It's a certainty. Because it's the only way Jesus can win salvation for his people. There is no other way. There is no other option. It isn't a plan or even plan A. It's the one and only plan. Jesus must die. And Jesus tells these men this before he dies so that when he dies they will know that he does not die as a helpless victim of circumstances beyond his control. He dies as a willing sacrifice possessing all power and all authority in both heaven and on earth. That changes things. And so, the cross isn't just central to God's plan. It's essential. Please listen carefully. There is no Christianity without a cross. There is no preaching the gospel without preaching the cross. And that's why the great 19th century Baptist pastor Charles Spurgeon once said, the pastor's primary objective is to make a beeline for the cross. There is no Christianity without a cross. There is no life without death. There is no conquering without sacrifice. And the disciples get what Jesus is saying. They understand it. They grasp it. But they don't like it. They aren't down with God's plan. It's ridiculous. It's preposterous. It's outrageous. Because it says something about them and about us. See, Jesus dying on a cross says that our big problem isn't a political problem. Or a career problem. Or a family problem. Or a financial problem. Our big problem isn't a COVID problem. Our big problem isn't an unloving spouse or a bad boss or a disobedient child or a shrinking 401k or what happens after the election in a few weeks. The cross says that our big problem isn't something else or someone else It's us. We're broken in need of redemption. We're sinners in need of salvation. We're spiritually bankrupt. We need Jesus to pay off the debt we can't work off. It's Colossians 2 verse 14. That in Jesus God canceled the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. This he set aside. How? Nailing it to the cross. But that's a major blow to our pride. Which is why Peter pulls Jesus aside 
to rebuke the Son of God. To tweak the plan of God. Matthew chapter 16, Matthew's account of this event, tells us that Peter actually says to Jesus, far be it from you, Jesus, this will never happen to you. And I can just imagine Peter saying, I won't let it. Jesus, you can't die. It's impossible. It's so unmessiah-like. You came to bring life, not death. So that's enough of all the suffering and rejection and death plan. Just stay on track, Jesus, with the ruling and reigning plan because that's what messiahs are supposed to do. Peter isn't just rebuking God. He's playing God. He isn't just rejecting God's plan. He's writing his own plan for God to follow. And that isn't, listen, that isn't just a dangerous thing. That's a devilish thing. And that's why Jesus turns to look at the disciples, all of them in their eyes. And he says to Peter publicly before these guys, get behind me, Satan. Because you aren't thinking God thoughts. You aren't thinking God plans. You're looking at this from a purely human perspective. And perhaps Peter's thinking right here, whoa, Jesus, you know, wow. Um, um, it was just a simple misunderstanding, okay? No, Peter, it isn't okay because your plan for Jesus is the same plan that Satan tempted Jesus with back in the wilderness during his 40 days of fasting. Remember that? You remember when Satan said, forget God's plan for you, Jesus. Adopt Billy Joel's song as your mantra. Just say to your father, this is my life. Go ahead, live your own life. Leave me alone. Forget the Old Testament prophecies, Jesus. Forget the crown of thorns and the nails and the cross that's coming. I'll give you all the glory that's yours. All the kingdoms of the world. Right here, right now. You can skip the rejection and the suffering and the dying. I'll spare you all of it. Just do it my way. To quote Frank Sinatra. Just follow my plan. But Jesus won't follow that plan because he's the only way our sins can be forgiven. He's the only way we can be reconciled to God. He's the only way we can have eternal life. And Peter, Peter will eventually get that, which is why he writes this in 1 Peter 1 verses 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So how vital is the death and resurrection of Jesus to you? Do you think you can get to heaven without him? Doing your thing, your way, 
according to your plan? Or maybe you think, you know, I can, I can get most of the way there or at least some of the way there on my own. And then, then I'll just, I'll trust Jesus to give me that, that final little push through the pearly gates. Oh, the Father's one and only plan for your salvation is that Jesus must die because he's the only way all the way. Is he your only way all the way? It's what Peter will write later in 1 Peter 3 verse 18. That Jesus suffers once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. So that he might bring us to God. It's, it's, it's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish. But will have eternal life. What's your plan for your eternity. How are you going to live forever in heaven with Jesus? Is your plan bumping up against God's plan? Or are you embracing God's plan by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone? If not, you can, you can, you can take his plan this morning. And make it your plan right where you are. You can trust in him. Repenting of your sins. And embracing Jesus Christ by faith. Confessing that he is Lord. Believing in your heart that God has raised the one who died from the dead. Will you come to Jesus and embrace his plan for you? Because it isn't just about God's plan for Jesus. It's about God's plan for you. If you want to follow Jesus. Is that what you want? If so, here's the plan you must embrace. It's all right here in verses 34 through 38. It isn't a popular plan. Because it isn't an easy plan But the good news is that the same grace that saves you also sustains you and empowers you to follow this plan as you follow Jesus. Here's what it looks like. It's it's so powerful. I'm just going to read the words of Jesus again. Right here, verses 34 through 38. If anyone would come after me, you've got to deny yourself. You've got to take up your cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give and return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So let's take a few moments here. And let's break this down into bite-sized chunks. Because here's God's plan for you. It begins with, number one, the cross defining what it means to follow Jesus. The cross defining what it means to follow Jesus. Listen, Jesus says right here, if you want to follow me, you know what that's going to look like? It's going to look like taking up your cross. Now, in 21st century America, let's just admit here that what Jesus says here loses its power and its punch. 
because the cross has become sentimental right for many of us it's a sentimental symbol of our faith we we decorate our walls with crosses at home we put a we put a cross on a chain and we wear it around our neck in fact the wallpaper on my church office computer is the picture of a celtic cross standing in the ruins of an irish castle but for these disciples in their world there was nothing sentimental or decorative about a cross it was the image of torture and oppression and death. Today, you go over to somebody's house and they have a cross over their kitchen sink or on the wall of their living room and you don't think anything about it. But imagine going over to someone's house and above their table, they have a picture of someone sitting in an electric chair or with a neck in a hangman's noose. And then you go into the nursery and dangling from their mobile above the crib are little electric chairs or hangman's nooses. You aren't going to say, oh, how cute. You're going to turn to your kids and say, listen, we aren't going to have play dates here anymore. And so when Jesus talks about taking up a cross, he's saying that following him isn't going to be easy. It's going to be hard. It's going to hurt. And sometimes it's going to hurt so badly that it feels like you're dying on a cross. Now listen, these crosses are not simply trials or hardships. Some people think that their cross to bear is a demanding boss or a husband who's checked out during football season or a wife who's all about the latest Netflix series. But a cross is the suffering that's a direct result of our allegiance to Christ. It's when you say no to something unethical the boss asks you to do and it costs you that raise or that promotion. It's when you choose to respond to mistreatment at work or at school with mercy rather than vengeance. It's when you take that first step toward reconciliation with someone, even when you know it won't be well received. Following Jesus is about doing the right thing, even though it's the hard thing, because it's the God-glorifying thing, even if it costs you everything. Because secondly, the cross calls you to lose your life for Jesus. And I'm not just talking about us standing before a firing squad. I'm talking about us getting up tomorrow morning and saying, God, I, I will lose my life today for Jesus. My goals my dreams, my ambitions. I will set them aside. I will deny myself. Now, when we think about denying self, we think about giving something up, right? Like giving up chocolate or coffee or the Cubs. Some of you got that, all right? Um, some of you got that, didn't think that was funny. But denying self isn't really about giving something up. It's about giving me up. 
It's about renouncing anything that trumps my allegiance to Jesus, what I like, what I want. So when we come in this room, it isn't about the songs that I want to sing in church. It isn't about the time I want the service to end. I mean, what would the church of Jesus look like and be like if we all lost our likes and wants for the glory of Jesus? Would it be difficult to find people to to staff the nursery or to serve as greeters? Would we have complaints about the music that it's too fast or too slow, too old or too new? What does it really mean for us to lose our life for Jesus? Because it isn't about giving up our stuff. It's about giving up ourselves. That's what the cross empowers us to do as we follow Jesus. And that's the third thing Jesus is calling us to here. The cross empowers you to follow Jesus. And so you aren't ashamed of Jesus or his words. You confess him publicly. You identify yourself as his follower. And you know how you do that? You know how you do that according to the Bible? You know how you go public with your faith and you're not ashamed of Jesus? You're baptized. You're baptized as a follower of Jesus. It's, it's, it's a step of obedience to him. It's a visible sign to the world that you believe in Jesus. Are you baptized? Have you gone public with your faith? And then you join with a church. Because church isn't, in the Bible, church isn't an event or even a meeting. It's a body of believers. It is a, it is a visible family of God here on earth. And joining the family of Jesus, the family of God, the visible family of God, is one of the big ways that we say to the world that we're with Jesus. Maybe you are baptized. Maybe you are a church member. But you know, outside these walls, you're quiet about your faith in Jesus. Your neighbors think you're awesome, but they don't know that Jesus is awesome or that you follow him. Or maybe it's your coworkers who don't know or your extended family members who don't know. And, and having, you know that having that conversation is going to be a hard thing. But the one who's gone to the cross for you is calling you to follow him there. So what is it for you? What's the hard thing, the taking up of your cross, that you know God wants you to do, but you aren't yet doing? Is it ending a relationship that you don't want to end, but you know it should end because your boyfriend or your girlfriend doesn't love Jesus like you? Is it teaching a Sunday school class or serving in the nursery or being a greeter? Is it changing your major or your career? Is it making a financial sacrifice for God's kingdom? Listen, Jesus is not calling you to do something he himself has not already done. And he's not calling you to do that alone. It's one of the reasons I love my own father so much. My dad, when dad taught us how to work growing up, he worked with us. I'm not sure I'm very good at that with my children. 
But dad was. He mowed 20 yards a week with his three boys. Jesus is not calling us to take up our cross and to die alone. He's there with us. He's the one who's blazed the way for us. He's given his life to us. And this morning he looks at each of us and he calls us to follow God's plan for our lives as he followed God's plan for his. Because what shall it profit a man to gain the whole world but to lose his own soul? If you will embrace his plan, even when you don't understand, if you will deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him, if you'd rather have Jesus than to be the king of a vast domain, if you'd rather have Jesus than to have wealth or fame, if you'd rather have Jesus than anything, you won't lose your life. You will save it. Forever. Because as Galatians 2 verse 20 says, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the plan. Amen. Father, may you take your word and plant it deep in my heart and in the hearts of your people. By your grace and for the glory of your Son, Jesus, make us doers of the word and not hearers only. May we count the cost and take up the cross and truly follow Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus today, you can be. Would you right now, right where you are, place your faith and trust in him, repenting of your sins and believing on Christ? And believer in Jesus, what's that hard thing that you know is God's plan for you? And you've been saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Like Peter does with Jesus. Jesus, not your plan, mine, mine. Would you this morning take up your cross and follow Christ? God, may your grace be sufficient. In Jesus' name, amen.